0: Welcome to remember their names, The Irish in Cleveland, a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society. The Society is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to research, present, and preserve information about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy Hello, I'm Margaret Lynch, Executive Director of the Irish American Archives Society. Welcome back to Remember Their Names. It's a podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. In the past few episodes, I've been talking about how the Ohio and Erie Canal transformed Cleveland from a small village to a bustling town. The city's population stood at 606 in 1820 before the canal. After, by 1840, it grew to 6,071. That's growth times 10. The Irish didn't account for all of it, but they played an important part. We left off last episode in the 1840s. As the 1840s give way to the 1850s in our story, canal prosperity gives way to a terrible crisis, but also to new opportunity. The crisis took place in Ireland, where blight destroyed the potato crop every year between 1845 and 1849. Catholics were already living at the economic margins at that time. They made up 80% of the population of Ireland. Catholic emancipation from earlier restrictive penal laws had begun in 1829, but Catholics had been denied access to property ownership, education, and skilled professions for generations. Most Catholics were tenant farmers who did not own their own land and could be evicted at will. They were subsistence farmers who only grew as much as their family needed to survive. 40% of their holdings were smaller than 15 acres, 25% were smaller than 5 acres. The potato crop was the only crop, the only grown in Ireland at the time, with a yield that was sufficient to feed a family on such small holdings. When the potato crop failed, at least 1 million people died between 1845 and 1849. Another 1.5 million immigrated from Ireland between 1845 and 1855. The famine immigrants arrived in North America in a desperate state. They were starving, poor, ill-clothed, often sick, largely uneducated, and unskilled. But for those who made their way to Cleveland, there was opportunity here. By fortunate historical accident, the years of the famine immigration coincided roughly with the coming of the railroad to Cleveland. So let me take a few moments to set the stage with the railroad first. The first steam locomotive had been introduced in the U.S. as far back as 1829. The Ohio and Erie Canal wasn't even fully operational in 1829, so the canals were barely up and running when the agent of their demise was appearing on the scene. Massive amounts of capital and infrastructure had been needed for the canals, and railroads would require another round of massive civic investment but railroads had the potential to move even greater amounts of stuff, whether raw materials or finished products, and move it much more quickly. Over the course of several decades, railroads would eclipse canals. Fortunately, even though the Cleveland City Fathers were early canal adapters, they jumped on the railroad quickly as well. For instance, Alfred Kelly, the great canal champion and canal commissioner I spoke of in an earlier episode, became the president of the railroad company that was the first to lay track in Cleveland. At the hands of Kelly and others, our city would continue to grow as an ever more diversified transportation hub that integrated the canal and river with railroads and Great Lakes shipping. I won't get into all the ins and outs of Cleveland's railroad history. It's marked by starts and stops, numerous bankruptcies, mergers and re-mergers. But in broad brushstrokes, there were two primary north-south routes at first, one connecting Cleveland with Cincinnati and the other with Pittsburgh. And eventually, there was one primary east-west route along the lake, connecting Cleveland with Buffalo to the east and Toledo to the west. And of course, all of those connections led to other connections and so forth and so on, ever further afield. The Cleveland-Columbus and Cincinnati Railroad, led by former Canal Commissioner Kelly, was the first to begin construction in Cleveland in November of 1849. It was also the first to be fully operational in February of 1851. Travel from Cleveland to the Pennsylvania state line was available in 1852, and construction began on a Cleveland-Toledo route almost immediately in the other direction. The Cleveland-Pittsburgh route was complete by 1853. Railroads were job multipliers, just as the famine immigrants were arriving in Cleveland. Of course, there was the hard labor to do of laying the track itself. Then railroad engines and cars also had to be made. Railroad cars and rails both required iron. So iron ore docks, iron foundries, and railroad repair yards provided new jobs in Cleveland as well. The iron ore had to come on ships from Upper Michigan or Minnesota, so shipbuilding yards and Whiskey Island were another interrelated source of new jobs, as were the rolling mills that opened in Newburgh, a township south of Cleveland. The rolling mills were so named because they were built to re-roll or recycle worn-out iron rails. While the famine immigrants would indeed benefit from all this activity, it would take most of them some time to get their bearings. Rare was the person who could walk off the boat in such a battered state and immediately master a new environment. I'll be talking about the experience of famine immigrants over the next several episodes. But first I want to tell you about a few pre-famine immigrants who already had their bearings in 1850 and were ready to take immediate advantage of the railroad boom in Cleveland. The first was Patrick Smith. I introduced him in an earlier episode, but to recap here... Patrick Smith was born in County Cavan, Ireland in 1827 and came to Cleveland with his family at the age of nine. They arrived only a few years after the canal was complete. The Smiths settled first in Newburgh, that township about seven miles south of Cleveland, which was along the canal route. Patrick Smith's father, John, was a teamster who undoubtedly hauled goods and materials to and from the canal barges young Patrick Smith found his calling in water commerce. He can be found at age 26 doing a dredging job at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River. He later developed a tugboat service and was called in his plane dealer obituary, and I quote, the biggest tugman in this city. He was also, in his day, one of the city's most prominent Irishmen, and his name will come up again in future podcast episodes. Although Patrick Smith came up in the canal economy, He also played a part in bringing the railroad to Cleveland. He wasn't a railroad magnet. The railroad owners and officers were all folks of English origin who had come to Cleveland from Connecticut or one of the other original colonies on the eastern seaboard. Canal Commissioner and Railroad President Alfred Kelly was a prime example. He arrived in Cleveland from Connecticut in 1810. Despite his Irish-sounding last name, Kelly's family claimed a long English lineage. In the late 1840s and early 1850s, Patrick Smith didn't have the access to bankers and capital that the Alfred Kellys of Cleveland did, but Smith's energy and competence attracted their attention. He was chosen to supervise the building of the Cleveland and Pittsburgh Railroad. That was a huge undertaking and accomplished in three short years. It opened other doors for Smith. While maintaining his dredging and tugboat businesses, Patrick Smith won contracts to build iron ore docks, and he was also able to venture into real estate. Described as a pile driver in the 1860 census, by the time of the 1900 census, he was identified as a quote, capitalist. He was credited in his obituary in 1902 with making a million dollars in his lifetime. Patrick Smith thrived on the interrelationship of Cleveland's waterways, river, canal, and lake with the city's growing railroad system. Two other pre-famine immigrant families also took advantage of Cleveland's interrelated railroad and shipping businesses. An 1852 newspaper item noted the enterprise of one of these families, the Farnins. Reading from the Plain Dealer. Messieurs Farnin and son, brass founders on Vineyard Street, are enlarging their area of business. They are receiving large quantities of stock from New York and are preparing to increase their number of hands. The firm is brimful of business, supplying our railroads, etc. They are sure to prosper. The Farnan family arrived in Cleveland sometime between 1850 and 1852 and you may be saying that's after the famine. It was, but Walter Farnan had been in the US for decades. He was born in Ireland in about 1805, we don't know where. His oldest son, James, was born in New Jersey in about 1830, so the family was in the US by 1830. Although I can't pick them up in earlier public records, in 1850 the Farnans were living in Cortland, New York, up the Hudson River from New York City. Walter was working as an iron molder. He then set his sights on Cleveland and switched from working iron to brass. I don't know why he made either decision, but both were very good decisions. While iron was a railroad mainstay, brass fittings were used in railroad cars and steamships as well as in the pipe system for Cleveland's growing waterworks. Farnan's was the only brass foundry listed in the 1853 Cleveland City Directory. His foundry was initially located on Vineyard Street and later moved to Center Street. Both were near the canal terminus in Cleveland's first commercial district, the commercial district in the Flats, which had been laid out and dubbed Cleveland Center two decades earlier. In the 1830s, Cleveland Center was filled with wholesale grocery warehouses, but in the 1850s, industrial outfits like Farnan's were muscling in. Also poised to benefit from the railroad and shipping industries was a fellow metal worker named Thomas Manning. Manning had also been born in Ireland in about 1815. He was about 10 years younger than Farnan. Again, we don't know where he was born either. However, perhaps in his late teens, he made his way to Glasgow, Scotland, located along the River Clyde. Glasgow was where he married, where his first two children were born, and where he learned the machinist trade, the trade of making machines. He can be found with his young family in Glasgow in the 1841 census. At some point between 1844 and 1848, he and his family immigrated to Massachusetts, where three more children were born. He may have been a step ahead of the famine immigrants, or he may have been arriving in the U.S. at about the same time as the famine immigrants, but he had already left Ireland before the famine begun, and he already had a trade. By about 1850, the family was in Cleveland, where three more children were born. <laughs> Thomas Manning found work as a machinist in Cleveland. And in 1857, the Plain Dealer noted that he was setting up his own shop for manufacturing steam engines. It was located on West Street, a block or so away from Farnan's brass foundry. The Plain Dealer sang his praises, as the Plain Dealer had sung the praises of Farnan before him. He is a thoroughbred workman, the Plain Dealer wrote, having graduated in the famous shops of the Scottish Clyde. At least three brothers would join Thomas Manning in Cleveland, along with their widowed mother. Thomas's brothers and sons often worked with him. The steam engines they built could be used to power both railroads and Great Lakes shipping vessels. Manning prospered. By 1864, he had reformed his company as Vulcan Iron Works. Ads for Vulcan and for Farnan's Brass Foundry appeared side by side in Cleveland's 1864 directory. Walter Farnan died in 1866, but Thomas Manning remained an active force in Cleveland's Irish community until his death in 1889. You'll hear Manning's name again in future podcasts. Patrick Smith, Walter Farnan, and Thomas Manning were already getting ahead in Cleveland in the 1850s. The three had interlocking business, social, and even family ties. All had work connected with railroad and shipping interests. Farnan and Manning coordinated business advertising. Farnan and Smith were both involved with Cleveland's Waterworks Committee. Smith and Manning were active leaders in the city's Irish organizations. And speaking of Irish organizations, by the way, Farnan's son, James, married the daughter of one of the Grand Marshals of Cleveland's first St. Patrick's Day Parade, which had taken place in 1842. These folks were like Cleveland Irish royalty. So, where did Irish royalty live in Cleveland in the 1850s and 1860s? Patrick Smith's family had started out in Newburgh, and he migrated to Cleveland up Broadway Street. In 1861, he can be found on what was then called Pittsburgh Street, and that would be today's Broadway. But by 1867, Smith was living on Washington Street, across from St. Malachy's Church, on the west side of the river, where he could be close to his business interests. In his obituary, it was reported, and I quote, Every night, just before retiring for the night, he would light his old lantern and quietly steal down to the creek to see if all was well with the tugs and boats in which he had an interest. End quote. While the business concerns of Farnon and Manning were also near the river, on the east bank of the river, Both men chose to live up from the river on its east side, near the new cathedral. St. John's was being built where it still stands at the corner of East 9th and Superior when the Farnans and the Mannings arrived in Cleveland. It was dedicated in 1852. The Farnans lived on Walnut Street, a block south of Superior. The Mannings can be found early on at addresses north of the cathedral, by 1867, and for many years, they were living on Dodge Street, about a block east of the cathedral. Pre-famine immigrants such as these were among the first Irish-born families to move west along Detroit Road. The area was, along Detroit was still sparsely settled farmland in 1860 when Walter Farn and son James purchased property on Detroit at today's West 70th Street. It was still a bucolic location when Thomas Manning began building a house in an arbor on Detroit in 1875. It was a prestigious address when James Farnan's daughter married Patrick Smith's son in 1888 and built a house next to the Farnans. The Smith Farnan House still stands today. It's the Creation Berry funeral home. The story of the Farnan House and how the Farnan women sustained the brass foundry business is a story for another day, but if you can't wait, local historian Jim Dubelco has written about it in an article, The House That Brass Built, on the website clevelandhistorical.org. I hope you'll remember the names of Patrick Smith, Thomas Manning, and the Farnans. They arrived early enough and were enterprising enough to find a secure place for themselves in Cleveland in the 1850s. I'm Margaret Lynch of the Irish American Archives Society. Thanks for listening and have a great day. You've been listening to Remember Their Names, The Irish in Cleveland, a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society of Cleveland. Find out more about the society or get in touch at irisharchives.org.